It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Los Angeles, early 1950s. LAPD officer Bert Phelps was still in his 20s and nimble enough to scurry up a telephone pole 50 feet in the air. But the wind that night bristled at his back, making it hard to steady himself as he worked. Down below, his partner, Jerry Wooters, urged him to hurry up. They were outside a bookie's office they'd been keeping tabs on. Hearing noises inside, Wooters was growing more paranoid by the minute. Someone might hear them. Phelps worked as quickly as he could. Securing a wiretap into a phone pole wasn't easy, especially in the dark. But if all went accordingly, the tracker would pick up incoming and outgoing calls from the bookie's phone. And one of his clients was Mickey Cohen, the L.A. crime boss they'd been tracking for years. But catching the Mick doing illegal business, whether gambling trades or protection rackets, was complicated. So much so that the LAPD had to create a covert unit whose sole task was to gather intel on the city's organized criminals. Wooters hissed at Phelps to wrap it up. The sudden outburst made Phelps' spike shoe lose its traction. He lurched to grab onto the telephone pole, but missed. He tumbled 50 feet down to the ground. He tried to tuck and roll like his military training taught him, but he still hit the ground with a sickening thud. Bert Phelps, the gangster squad's second bug man, survived the near-fatal fall. But it was a close call. Of course, that was the price of poking around in the shadowy affairs of L.A.'s organized crime. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Today, we have a special one-part episode on the LAPD's Gangster Squad a unit of hand-picked police officers that were tasked with chasing the city's most wanted mafia bosses. We'll explore why the squad was created in the wake of massive police corruption and the tactics they used to take down notorious L.A. gangsters like Jack Dragna and Mickey Cohen in the 1940s and 50s. 
Bert Phelps' fateful night on the ladder was a typical task for the gangster squad. Though they made it out without being caught, the stakes were always high. The mob had men everywhere. Undercover cops caught trying to wiretap an associate of the notorious Mickey Cohen put everyone involved in jeopardy. Bert left that night with broken feet, arms, and back. But after two grueling months of bed rest, he recovered. And more importantly, he'd go back to work. This was the nature of the gangster squad, each man sacrificed for justice. They wanted to make sure that the work they'd been conducting since October of 1946 hadn't been in vain. Cracking down on mob activity was a tall order, and one that came with a long and challenging history. By the mid-1940s, the sprawling metropolis of Los Angeles was rife with organized crime. From Inglewood to Santa Monica to Pasadena, dozens of different law enforcement agencies were needed to police L.A. County. Because there was so much distance between neighborhoods, LAPD found it difficult to keep up. It was a small force, and each year brought more droves of people to the city. And mixed in with those migrants were criminals from New York, looking to extend their power and influence on the West Coast. The problem of illegal businesses tucked within the massive city went back to the 1920s. During Prohibition, the money to be made off bootleg liquor sales was like a hot dose of kerosene on the smoldering fire of organized crime. Mobsters jumped in and offered alcohol to clubs and casinos all across the Southland. And with the millions they were raking in, they were able to pay off politicians, police officers, and journalists. For decades, city officials and civilians had hoped that the bright sunshine of L.A. would deter the expansion of the sordid businesses favored on the East Coast. L.A. was full of glamorous promise with industries like Hollywood. It seemed too glossy for the mob. But as early as the 1890s, LAPD chief John Glass warned that annoyance and danger to the residents of this city is yearly growing. Each winter brings us an increased number of burglars, safe blowers, and other skilled thieves from the large cities of the East. And he was right. Organizations like the Black Hand, which had roots in the Sicilian Mafia, started staking territory in California in the early 1900s. When Prohibition came, bootlegging boomed. The Depression came next. Time's ripe for more under-the-table dealings. All this was an incredible business opportunity for men like Jack Dragna. Ignazio Jack Dragna was a Sicilian by way of New York. Around 1915, he'd come to Los Angeles to escape murder charges in New York. Though he was eventually tracked down and extradited for the crime, he dodged prison and made his way back to California. And there was no shortage of opportunities in the Golden State. Dragna rose to become Joseph Ironman Artizone's right-hand man. In the late 1920s, Artizone was arguably the leader of organized crime in Los Angeles. But in October 1931, at the tail end of the Castella-Marisi War, Artizone mysteriously vanished. Back in New York, 
two warring mob factions had been competing for power. Arizzone had voiced support for Salvatore Maranzano's side, which could have placed a target on his back. Despite a broad search following his disappearance, Arizzone's body was never recovered. So, in 1931, 40-year-old Jack Dragna took up the reins as the head of the L.A. crime family. Seeing Arditzone's misstep, Dragna tried to smooth over relations with the bosses back east. He knew he would have to do business with them, and being on good terms would help him cement his role as an L.A. figurehead. Los Angeles was an up-and-coming scene for organized crime but it was still too insignificant to warrant much attention from the nationwide Mafia Commission. Without an established infrastructure, L.A. was a wide-open frontier for gangsters from all across the country. Expats from New York, Chicago, Detroit, and the like all came together in the sun-bleached streets of Southern California, including Dragna's clan and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. Seeing a city of opportunity, these men diversified their businesses quickly. Dragna sunk his claws into the illegal gambling, while Bugsy Siegel found he could hustle Hollywood unions and make a fortune by extorting production companies. Even the LAPD got a piece of the action. The police quickly gained a reputation for taking bribes from the deep-pocketed gangsters. All they had to do was look the other way. In 1937, local businessman Clifford Clinton was summoned to an L.A. County grand jury. The subsequent trial he was placed on gave him an idea of how deeply the city's corruption ran. Clinton personally funded a civilian investigative committee. According to journalist and Gangster Squad author Paul Lieberman, Clinton's eventual report revealed the city was home to 1,800 bookies 600 brothels, 200 gambling parlors, and 23,000 slot machines, all operating under the nose of Mayor Frank Shaw. But Clinton's good intentions turned bloody. In January 1938, a bomb exploded in the car of Harry Raymond, a private investigator working for Clinton's committee. Evidence quickly surfaced that the bomb was placed by the LAPD. The police had suspected that Raymond was hired to dig up dirt on the force's corruption. Before the bombing, police captain Earl Kinnett had dispatched officers to stake out Raymond's house. And worse, the detonating wire for the bomb was found in Kinnett's garage. Naturally, the public was horrified. In a flurry of changes, Captain Kinnett went behind bars for attempted murder, the chief of police resigned, and Frank Shaw became the first metropolitan mayor recalled from his position, a nearly unheard of occurrence in U.S. history. Judge Fletcher Boron replaced Shaw as mayor, promising to steer a mission of anti-corruption and reform. Upwards of 200 police officers and commanders were given the boot, whether by transfer, retirement, or termination. Mayor Boron was clear. He was going to clean up his own backyard first. But he'd need to get honest men to fill those spots quickly, especially an upstanding police chief. 
Instead of outsourcing a savvy veteran from out of state, Boron looked to 45-year-old longtime LAPD officer Clements B. Horall. A rugged westerner who'd cut his teeth on Montana's backcountry, Horall moved to sunny LA and joined the force in the early 1920s. By 1941, he was appointed as chief of police. Horall knew his reputation would be contingent on cleaning up the streets. But by the fall of 1946, if the LA Times headline, Gangsters in Gambling War, was any indication, he wasn't doing so hot. The Times headline incited the chief to take action. He needed men that knew the ins and outs of organized crime. He couldn't put any rookies on the task. A special unit whose sole job was to surveil organized criminals seemed like the best place to start. And if they needed to use some scare tactics along the way, Horrell's attitude was, so be it. No one could know which men on the force were taking bribes, so the unit needed to stay under wraps or it'd be in jeopardy. According to Paul Lieberman, this new squad would need to operate at a time and place where truth was found not in the sunlight, but in the shadows, and justice found not in marble courthouses, but in the streets. Because Horall's hands were full overseeing the entire police force, he looked to a younger, scrappier man to manage the squad, Sergeant Willie Burns of the 77th Street Station. At five foot seven inches, Burns was a stocky ex-Minnesotan who had solidified his reputation as an ex-Marine. Horall's sales pitch was compelling. Manage an elite division of men to keep tabs on LA's most notorious gangsters. According to writer John Bunton, the goal was to make it difficult and unpleasant for the subject of surveillance to meet with others, transact business, or have friends. If they could quietly clean up the sordid businesses of drug shipments and protection rackets before they spilled out into the streets, the LAPD may just be able to polish its tarnished reputation. Willie Burns was in. The gangster squad would be flies on the walls of Los Angeles. The unit's formation in October of 1946 was a gathering of ghosts, essentially. Its purpose was to not exist. Prospects were hand-picked by Lieutenant Burns, 18 men from various ranks and backgrounds within the LAPD. After being given the green light by Chief Horal, Burns posed the offer as one they couldn't resist. Taking a spot on this unit would surely curry favor with the chief. For any man looking for a promotion a few years down the line, this was the place to be. But not every man at the meeting was game for the requirements. Extreme secrecy, long 15-hour days, and dealing directly with LA's most unsavory and dangerous criminals. A week passed and only seven men signed on to join the squad. Those that accepted included Sergeant Jack O'Mara, Conwell Keeler, Jerry the Professor Thomas, and James Jumbo Kennard. Lieutenant Burns instructed his core team on how to operate. Any man on a squad assignment was to not arrest whoever they were targeting. If someone warranted a booking, 
they'd call in the uniformed officers on that beat. Arrests needed to be legitimate to hold up in court so the proper neighborhood cops should make them. And of course, no patrol cars. Instead, they'd operate out of two unmarked, rusted-out Fords. Driving old beaters kept a low profile. Even the license plates on the Fords were often swapped out when the men were tailing a particularly sensitive lead. By staking out the trash cans at the DMV, they could nab out-of-state plates to put on as burners. In the beginning, these cars would be their only communal spaces. Not having a true office was just another precaution. The squad's hangouts would be the very streets they policed. These incredible stealth tactics led the gangster squad to be known as the Termite Men. Although, while the Fords were covert, their Tommy guns would make it harder for the squad to operate on the sly. They were excellent for intimidation, but the three-foot-long violin cases that held the semi-automatic weapons were clunky, and they couldn't stay tucked away in the trunk of the car, lest they be stolen and fall into the wrong hands. So, with the cases in hand, the men would meet up on street corners and talk through the plan for any given evening. If they were lucky, they could tailor a stakeout based on tips that came in from informants, and the men were sure to pay these informants handsomely. The squad's secret service fund topped out at nearly $25,000. With the team assembled and expectations laid out, it was time to clean up the streets. Though mob bosses thought they had the resources to dodge surveillance, the squad was willing to push back with far more clever tactics. Up next, the gangster squad takes to the streets of Los Angeles. Thank you so much for listening. We want to take this time to tell you that Kingpins will be taking the next two weeks off. We'll be back with a brand new episode on January 10th. In the meantime, we do have a special gift to share with you. While we're away, we'll be airing our listeners' most requested episodes of 2019. If you'd like to check out the most requested episodes from ParCast's other shows, subscribe to ParCast Presents to hear our best of 2019. From everyone here at ParCast, we'd like to wish you a happy holiday season. We're thankful for your support and look forward to bringing you even more unique and entertaining podcasts in the new year. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the story. In the mid-1940s, the LAPD created a special secretive unit to make life miserable for organized crime. The gangster squad had two targets of high interest, Mickey Cohen and Jack Dragna. Mickey was a Jewish ex-pro boxer of Ukrainian descent who originally hailed from Brooklyn. He moved to Los Angeles as a child and grew up in Boyle Heights, a neighborhood just outside of downtown. As a teenager, he ran away from home, moving to Cleveland, then New York, then Chicago. Out east, he'd been introduced to racketeering and gambling. With his boxing career fizzling, Mickey saw an opportunity. He returned to Los Angeles in 1939. 
By his mid-twenties, Mickey was working for Bugsy Siegel, playing the scrappy enforcer to Siegel's suave Hollywood charm. Bugsy himself wouldn't remain of interest to the squad for long. He was fatally shot in his mansion on June 20th, 1947, while reading the evening edition of the LA Times. His murder was never solved, but the hit was linked to his failure to complete construction on a casino in Las Vegas. His abrupt exit left a hefty power vacuum in his wake. Mickey Cohen was more than happy to step in to fill his boss's two-tone leather shoes. If Bugsy Siegel was the epitome of a classy Hollywood sportsman, Mickey Cohen was a devil-may-care mafioso with his own eccentricities. One of the more glaring ones was his constant hand-washing. Mickey's undiagnosed OCD was so severe he insisted on 90-minute showers. Even money, the spoil he loved the most, wasn't immune to his scrutiny. He'd rather leave big tips for poor service at restaurants than touch the dirty change to put it back into his pocket. He was convinced that germs would get him before any bullets did. But just in case, he made sure to keep up a few good fronts. Mickey's garment stores were versatile. He could employ goons legally and sweep the illegal cash under the rug under the nebulous term of business transactions. The gangster squad knew this, but they couldn't just loiter outside Michael's haberdashery and hope for incriminating evidence. They'd need a different avenue to catch Mickey doing the real business. Technology was the ace up the squad's sleeve. A bug inside Mickey's home turned out to be just the Trojan horse they needed. The squad had its very own electronics wizard, Conwell Keeler. A former mechanic with Midwestern strength, Keeler was more brains than brawn. An old operation in a military hospital left him with an iron brace on his knee, so he wasn't able to chase down targets on foot. He could cobble together listening devices, but planting them was nearly a suicide mission for Keeler. To bug Mickey Cohen's house, he had to sneak through the mixed backyard, past the dogs, through the house, into the crawl space, and get back out without being detected. Remarkably, he did it. The gangster squad now had ears on the inside, but it was a ticking clock. The batteries on the listening device would run dead in less than 11 days. Time would be on the squad's side. As the batteries were nearing empty, they picked up word that Mickey was having his television repaired. The TV was nearly brand new, but had been picking up odd frequencies. Little did he know that this was due to the bug the squad had planted just days before. When the TV repairman headed to Mickey's, the squad sent one of their own in uniform with him. The two repaired the TV while simultaneously installing a new listening device right within the set itself. Mickey Cohen had paid for his own wiretapping, and he was none the wiser. In fact, he'd graciously tipped the repairman $50 to split. The bug inside Mickey's house proved fruitful. The squad learned that he was largely conducting his illegal operations in Burbank or in unincorporated parts of the city. In Burbank, 
he'd built a casino not far off a movie studio lot that would be filled with equestrian riders and studio extras who'd spend their downtime playing craps. The wheels of the business were greased by bribes to Burbank's chief of police, Elmer Adams. The chief was happy to avoid patrolling near Mariposa Street in exchange for crisp new suits from Michael's haberdashery. The squad had struck gold with the bugs. Now they just had to sit back, wait, and let the case build itself. Finding dirt on Jack Dragna, the squad's other main target, was an entirely different game. Where Mickey was easy to spot, going in and out of his stores or proudly picking up the check at Hollywood restaurants, Dragna kept a low profile. He owned a banana warehouse near downtown, Dragna's Latin Import and Export Co. Night guards and watchmen made it hard for the squad to get too close. And when they did place bugs outside, they were quickly found and destroyed. Dragna wasn't a showboat. He needed distance and privacy to run his various businesses, which included extorting the dry cleaners union, managing horse racing tips, illegal gambling operations, and bouts of drug smuggling. The squad would have to get creative to catch Dragna stepping out of line. And for all its claims of anti-corruption, by late 1947, the force was edging closer to the checkered ethics it promised to leave behind. If flashing their Tommy guns wasn't enough to intimidate mafiosos, sometimes they would put the stubborn gangsters into their rusty Fords and take them on a short trip up to Mulholland Drive. The quiet hills were an eerie backdrop for a lecture. Sergeant Jack O'Mara was rumored to wave his handgun around, showing the criminals that he meant business. The squad claimed these chats in the hills never crossed the line but they were operating in murky territory. It certainly conflicted with the squeaky clean reputation Chief Haral had been pushing for. And it was about to get them into trouble. Just two years after the squad's formation, the LAPD hierarchy was about to be shaken up once again. Though many Angelinos look at the Black Dahlia murder as the scandal that yanked the LAPD down into the trenches, the Brenda Allen incident proved equally damning. In the 1940s, Brenda Allen was LA's most prominent madam. On February 21st, 1947, Allen was seated in a car next to Sergeant Elmer Jackson of LAPD's administrative vice. When gangster Roy Pee Wee Lewis tried to hold up the car at gunpoint, Sergeant Jackson, pretending to grab his wallet, drew his gun and shot him dead. Unfortunately, details of the incident leaked back to Mickey Cohen. Sergeant Jackson already had an enemy in Mickey thanks to regular raids of his clothing stores. The Mick knew he could capitalize on anything to get the cops to lay off his tail the juicy detail of a glamorous madam carousing with the LAPD gave him potent ammunition. In May 1949, Mickey testified on behalf of one of his goons, Happy Meltzer, who was being charged for possession of a deadly weapon. None other than Sergeant Jackson had arrested Meltzer. 
When Mickey took the stand, he insisted the arrest was just another incident of the LAPD trying to shake him down. Though it had nothing to do directly with the current trial, he produced recordings of the sergeant fraternizing with Brenda Allen to prove the cop was crooked. The damage was done. By the end of the trial, the jury was hung and everyone was looking at Sergeant Jackson with suspicion. Inquiry into the Pee Wee Lewis murder followed. A weary Chief Horral retired a month later. A month after that, he was indicted for his failure to investigate further into the relationship between Brenda Allen and the Advice Squad. Following this news, Mayor Boron took to his stump, adamant that the city could still clean up the police department. He directed the end of his press conference straight at Mickey Cohen, saying, I give you full warning. You have not intimidated me or the Los Angeles Police Department. We are coming after you. Clearly, the LAPD needed someone who could deliver big changes and fast. 52-year-old General William Wharton was brought out of retirement to serve as the interim chief. Mayor Boron hoped the World War I Marine vet with a Harvard degree could bring some class and morals back to the force. Wharton saw the value of the gangster squad immediately, but he worried that its leadership needed someone with a better reputation than Willie Burns. After the advice scandal, there was no room for mistakes with a unit known for questionable tactics. So in October 1949, Wharton replaced the squad's leader with Captain Lynn White from Narcotics. In the process, the gangster squad moved into a space in City Hall, right next to Chief Wharton. The classy new office came with a new unit name, Administrative Intelligence. Though the gangster squad may have served the detail before, in light of the recent scandals, they need something more legitimate on paper. Wharton did his best to kickstart reforms within the department, but his tenure was only as the interim chief of police. Luckily, as 1950 loomed, he had a pretty good idea of the man for the permanent job. That man was 45-year-old Deputy Chief William H. Parker, he got his grit growing up in the hills of Deadwood, South Dakota. He moved to Los Angeles as a teenager in 1922 and joined the LAPD five years later. After being on the ground during some of the department's worst years, he acknowledged the checkered past, saying, Police history is not a pretty thing. It does not inspire confidence. But even the hardened new chief was shocked by the dire shape of the organization he was taking over. And it was easy to single out the gangster squad as a cowboy operation that took advantage of the loopholes of the LAPD. A secretive unit carrying Tommy guns and planting wires opened up a trove of liabilities. A firm believer in policing his own offices as strictly as the streets, Parker was ready to shut down the squad. The Brenda Allen advice scandal had proved that whoever was chief would be held accountable for all of the men on his watch. That summer of 1950, Parker placed his right-hand man, Captain James Hamilton, in charge of the squad. The position was less about taking down Mickey Cohen and Jack Dragna 
and more about creating transfer orders from the officers in the unit. They were being moved to low totem pole assignments like accident or traffic investigation. It was only a matter of time before the higher-ups officially pulled the plug on the gangster squad. Original squad member Jack O'Mara knew he had to try something. He and his comrades had spent four arduous years with long nights and clandestine meetings trying to build their cases. He wasn't going down without a fight. Coming up, Omara takes the squad into his own hands and gangsters start dropping like flies. Now back to the story. In August of 1950, the LAPD's gangster squad was on the verge of getting shut down. 33-year-old Jack O'Mara, one of the original members, needed to show police chief Bill Parker that the squad was valuable. Lucky for him, one of the squad's targets, Mickey Cohen, provided an opportunity. Through one of his paid informants, O'Mara knew that Cohen was planning an under-the-radar business trip to Texas. Strangely, though, Cohen's traveling companion was the husband of Floribelle Muir, a newspaper reporter whose loyalties favored the mob. She was notorious for being chummy with Mickey, and her husband's presence only seemed to confirm that something about the trip was crooked. Omara did some digging and found out that Mickey and Muir boarded a flight under the aliases Denny Morrison and Denny Morrison Jr. Omara sent a cable to the Texas Rangers as a heads up that a notorious gangster was headed their way. The ploy worked. They caught up with Mickey and Muir and told them to get packing. The governor of Texas emphasized there was no room for mob activity in his state, saying, if you're in Texas, get out. Back in L.A., Chief Parker was impressed with how O'Mara had flexed the squad's resources. More trusting of their on-the-fly police work, the chief decided the unit would live on, with a few changes. First, a new name. The gangster squad turned administrative intelligence now became the Organized Crime Intelligence Division. The Tommy guns were locked away, too, but for what it lost in ammo, the unit gained in manpower. The squad would grow to nearly 50 people. One was Jerry Wooters, an ex-advice cop with deep knowledge of LA's off-the-books gambling scene. Con Keeler, the squad's original bug man, recruited the new electronics whiz, Bert Phelps, an engineering pro Phelps was able to rig together contraptions like a phone tracker, which logged outgoing calls. It was the wizardry of electronics that would again help the men catch another one of their targets, Jack Dragna. According to journalist Paul Lieberman, though Dragna was cautious to a fault, there was one instance in which he slipped up in covering his tracks his women. The squad often turned a blind eye to the extramarital affairs of its targets, but Jack Dragna's relationship with a young clerical worker gave them an opportunity they couldn't pass up. Jerry the Professor Thompson managed to bug the young woman's apartment through a section of the bed's headboard. This became known as the bedbug. 
In a few months' time, the conversations they overheard allowed them to arrest Dragna on lewd conduct and vagrancy charges. It was a scrappy way to get a conviction, but successful nonetheless. Dragna was found guilty two months later, in June of 1951. Though the charge was a small infraction, it had ominous implications for the gangster himself. Moral crimes were a sore spot for the commission, the mafia's governing body back east. Being caught in the apartment of his mistress irreparably damaged Dragna's reputation within the eyes of his fellow mobsters. Dragna's conviction in the summer of 1951 indicated that the latter half of the year could set up another win for the squad, though it might come from an unlikely place. The year before, in November of 1949, the IRS had shown up at Mickey Cohen's doorstep looking for answers. They didn't believe he was making the paltry sum he reported, just under $73,000 as of 1946. They were able to track his spending over the next few years as upwards of $300,000. Mickey landed himself in the middle of a massive investigation being conducted by the Kefauver Committee, which was investigating organized crime. Starting in 1950, the committee traveled to 14 cities. Once it hit LA, Mickey was due for his hearing. Only a few days after Dragna was arrested for his lewd conduct, Mickey Cohen was indicted for tax evasion. Following a seven-month investigation, Mickey was finally sentenced to five years in federal prison in July 1951. For the next few years, Mickey would be out of L.A. and out of the squad's hair. They could focus on cleaning up the bookmakers that had worked with him and Dragna. But after years of working nearly 15-hour days in the shadows, the toll had started to wear on the squad's eight original men. Late nights, ever-present alcohol on stakeouts, and habitually glancing over their shoulders were all toxic stressors. This became apparent when, in March of 1952, squad member Jumbo Kennard's car slid off the road and rammed into a bus. The accident was fatal. Kennard was only 39. Jerry the Professor Thomas was the next original squad member to pass on. He felt the strain of the unit's secrecy on his marriage and developed severe ulcers due to stress. In his final months, according to Paul Lieberman, Thomas nearly lost his mind, showing up for work wearing one black shoe and one brown shoe. Unable to cope with the heaviness of life, the professor eventually took his own life with his revolver. Even their once fearless leader, Willie Burns, was on his way out. After being demoted to regular patrol duty, he'd hung up his LAPD badge. And though his new gig as police chief in San Luis Obispo was far more lucrative, he'd barely settled in when he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He died soon after, at just 54 years old. These were stark warning signs. The men on the squad weren't making it to their mid-50s. In the past five years, they'd racked up some wins and a few devastating losses, but they had little to show for the toxic levels of stress. 
and their biggest catch, Mickey Cohen, was about to leave prison early. The Mick was supposed to serve five years in federal prison for tax evasion, but he managed to claw his way out with good behavior. Only 480 days later, in October of 1955, he was released. Naturally, it wasn't long before Mickey and the squad resumed their game of cat and mouse. Sergeant Jerry Wooters tracked him like a hound, looking for any toes out of line. He even tried to catch Mickey on charges of disturbing the peace when he cursed out the sergeant with ladies within earshot. Mickey was arrested and faced trial. But the city wasn't interested in sending him back to prison for a few bad words. After that incident, Mickey definitely didn't stop testing the waters. In May of 1957, he agreed to appear on the Mike Wallace interview on ABC News. On national television, Cohen admitted that he'd killed men, but insisted anyone he'd taken shots at deserved it. He also went off on Chief Parker, saying, Parker is a known alcoholic. He's been disgusting. In other words, he's a sadistic degenerate of the worst type. Mike Wallace was alarmed. What he'd hoped to be a juicy interview with LA's Devil May Care gangster had turned into a slander suit from the LAPD. The network was forced to pay Chief Parker over $45,000 in damages. Of course, it was ABC's money, not Mickey's. But it didn't matter to the chief. He'd take every penny he could get for the year's sleep the gangster had cost him. And if that spring's lawsuit provided some much-needed wind in the squad's sails, that fall had an even better surprise waiting in the wings. In mid-November 1957, New York State troopers happened upon an odd celebration. In Appalachian, a sleepy town about an hour and a half south of Syracuse, they found dozens of overdressed men enjoying a cookout at a classy estate. The fancy out-of-state cars in front of the house seemed far too flashy for colleagues of the home's owner, a supposed soda pop salesman. So they decided to drop in and say hello. The Appalachian meeting of 1957 was a rendezvous of the who's who of American crime. When Robert F. Kennedy got wind that L.A. gangsters Frank DeSimone and Simone Scozzari had flown cross-country for the so-called picnic, he went straight to the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. DeSimone was Jack Dragna's successor as the new L.A. strongman, and Scozzari was his underboss. Scozzari went way back with the Dragna clan. He'd spent many nights playing canasta in the apartment of Jack's mistress, the one with the bedbug. Hoover had long denied any existence of a national crime syndicate, especially in Los Angeles. This was in part due to bad blood between him and Chief Parker. According to Paul Lieberman, Hoover and Parker butted heads as they competed to be the nation's paragon of law enforcement virtue. Though the FBI likely knew more about the mob than it was willing to let on, Hoover couldn't deny that the presence of two Angelinos at the East Coast Mafia meeting was a smoking gun. Not only did Los Angeles have criminal infrastructure, but it was looking to grow. 
J. Edgar Hoover's next big announcement was the Top Hoodlum Program. It would track the country's most active mob syndicates through surveillance and internal informants. The Bureau would need all the backlogged information it could get. Naturally, on the heels of the announcement, two of Hoover's agents were holding their hats at L.A. City Hall. They'd need to speak to the gangster squad. After 11 long years of late-night stakeouts, dangerous undercover operations, and near shutdowns, the squad had achieved a major victory. The FBI signed on to their mission. The street corner meetings and barbershop chats that the squad so meticulously followed were proof that Los Angeles didn't have a small organized crime problem. It had dozens of mafiosos hungry to gain ground and federal resources would finally be coming to fight the problem. The move came at the right moment. By the early 1960s, the original squad's watch was coming to a close. They were down to a handful of men who'd answered Willie Burns' call to action back in 1946. Most of the originals had already retired their badges. And with the new blood coming in to pick up the fight, the rest would eventually follow suit. It was a relief to be able to finally go to sleep without a Tommy gun case under the bed and to leave the house in the morning knowing they'd make it home that night to hug and kiss their family. The years had even tired out the Mick. In 1961, he was convicted of tax evasion for the second time. Mickey would go on to outlive bullets and prison beatings, only for stomach cancer to bring his demise in 1976. Out of the squad's original eight men, Con Keeler, the bug man, was the only one to see old age. In 2011, the 97-year-old Keeler even saw production begin on the Warner Brothers feature film, Gangster Squad. The new age of Hollywood couldn't resist going back to the men of yore who had lingered under the streetlights of Sunset Boulevard. But the criticism of the movie was staunch. It was said to be flashy and glamorized crime, making real near-death encounters play as sexy, mysterious trysts. In reality, the gangster squad was gritty, unpolished, and back-breakingly stressful. They were on their own, up against the crime that filled every crack of a sprawling city. By gathering information and understanding the complicated relationships that unfolded in seedy cocktail lounges, they hoped that, one by one, they'd get enough evidence to put criminals like Mickey Cohen and Jack Dragna behind bars. Or at the very least, the men hoped to chisel away at the luxurious facade that enshrouded mobsters, bringing their whispered secrets to lights. And they did. Their success would live on in stories of the dark era of old Hollywood. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information, we found Paul Lieberman's book, Gangster Squad, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Kingpins was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargit. Just a reminder that we'll be back with a new episode on January 10th, In the meantime, we'll be playing our listeners' most requested episodes of 2019. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a wonderful holiday season.